Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This is a moment to seize. The kaleidoscope has been shaken. The pieces are in flux. Soon they will settle again. Before they do, let us reorder this world around us. That was Tony Blair on the 2nd of October 2001, five days before the American and British invasion of Afghanistan. And now we all know how that story ended up. So, Tom, we thought we would um, devote this week's uh, podcast to a survey of Afghan history, didn't we? Explain some of the background to the events that we've been seeing in the last few days and to ask some of these sort of big questions about can empires ever intervene in Afghanistan? Um, is it an inherently lawless and violent place or is that just uh, yeah. a series of kind of cliches? And also um, this episode will serve as an introduction to um, a much more focused uh, episode which will follow tomorrow with Willie Dalrymple looking specifically at the episode that people often kind of compare to what's going on today, which is the first Afghan war, absolutely calamitous disaster in the history of British imperialism. Um, But yes, but I think, I I do think that the the talk of Afghanistan as a graveyard of empires, of which obviously, for obvious reasons, there's a great deal at the moment, occludes the way in which uh, Afghanistan has also been a great womb of empires. Yeah. If you pull the camera back, um, this way in which uh, imperial powers kind of gestate within Afghanistan, and then they kind of come out down the, uh, the the Khyber Pass, invade northern India, settle there, become kind of enervated and soft, and then the cycle repeats. I mean, that's an equally kind of resonant pattern that you can trace through history. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And also when people say... Um oh, they talk about the sort of medieval barbarism of the Taliban and, and so on. I mean, actually, the irony is that in medieval period, Afghanistan was a, was actually a very sophisticated and civilised place. And indeed um, an ancient well. history yeah. as well. Um, so, which... so so let's skip, put it into a bit of context. And and actually, I know we both agree about this. That the single most important thing is to get a sense of geography because geography yeah. comes before history, famously. Yes. Uh, and so actually, as we're sitting here, I've got a map <laughs> right in front of me. And crucially, it doesn't just show the cities, it shows the mountains. Because Afghanistan is quite a kind of odd country. Uh, I mean, it's not, it, it, it's, it's not, I think, a kind of natural nation state in the way, say, that, that, that England might be. Denmark. Denmark. You can trace the uh, the contour. So Afghanistan has um, a massive range of mountains running right the way through through the middle of it. And the, the key cities kind of basically exist in relationship to that. So um, the, the, the northern kind of flatlands, the north of these mountain range, in very ancient times was known as Bactria. And the southern range of the kind of deserts that you have there were known as Arachosia. Yeah. So you've got Herat in the far west, you've got Kandahar in the far south, and you've got Kabul in a, a kind of um, a valley which is it, it links to, um, to to what is what is now Pakistan. So kind of bold, but, but you have these m- these these massive mountains in the middle, and that is really the kind of the key factor I think that that you have to 
to bear in mind. I mean, wouldn't you agree? I think absolutely yeah. geography is destiny. And-, and actually the geography, because it's because of that geography that you have the ethnic mix. So the ethnic mix is a massive part yeah. of the um, of the story of modern Afghanistan, certainly. So Pashtuns, what are they, about 40%. And then you've got Tajiks, Hazaras, Uzbeks, and, and other smaller groups of people. So in other words, it's not one homogenous kind of community of Afghans. It no. is competing people who speak different languages, and often, you know, their antagonists are each other rather than outsiders necessarily. And that reflects the fact that it, that it's a crossroads, and you know, strategically, absolutely key, <laughs> coming from all kinds of directions. Um, so, India, we've mentioned, I and mean, it's kind of very obvious at the moment. But also, there are trade links to to China, to um, to, to the stands to the north, uh, and I think crucially to Iran. So, yeah, I think okay. Persia is absolutely massive massive influence uh, and if Ali Ansari was here who who did that kind of wonderful podcast for us on on uh, the ways that Persia has influenced history I uh, would have no doubt in saying that Persia is probably the the kind of decisive influence on the way that that what yeah. is now Af- Afghanistan has evolved and really um what is now Afghanistan first emerges into history with the great Persian empire so that's uh, the empire the, of Cyrus the Great Cyrus the Great um Darius the Great um, merges in the sixth century BC, endures until Alexander conquers it. And, um, Bactria, as I mentioned, is the kind of the, the northern lands that, that lie above the kind of central mountain range in Afghanistan. And then beyond that, Sogdiana, uh, into what, what's now Uzbekistan. Those are satrapies or provinces of the, the great Persian king. Yeah. And, from the point of view of what happens when the Persian Empire falls, what's interesting about it is that it's a place where Greeks get exiled. So uh, Miletus, the great city on the Aegean, um, on, on, what, on what's now Turkey, the, the Milesians rebel against the Persians and um city gets destroyed. And the Milesians get exiled to, to Sogdiana, so north of, of Bactria. But other Greeks get exiled into Bactria. And into when, Afghanistan. It's what's yeah, now Afghanistan. Yeah. So that's the sort of Siberia then. It's the sort kind of, Cy- of yes. Persia's Siberia. Yes. You get sent there if you're they're putting you out of harm's way as a sort of punishment. Yeah, absolutely. And um it, it means that although I mean they they become kind of loyal subjects of of the Persian king. Uh and right. the, the, the the Bactrians, um, you know, people talk about how Afghanistan is a land that is the graveyard of empires. It isn't the graveyard of Persian imperialism. I mean it's it, it, it remains a part of the Persian Empire for two centuries, basically. Yeah. When, which is why when, when Alexander turns up he takes for granted that now that he is the great king, he's conquered the Persian Empire, these lands belong to him. Well, so this is an amazing story, isn't it? So Alexander has conquered Egypt, the Levant, the Persian heartland, and the Persian king Darius has been killed. And the guy who killed him, Bessus, his his base is in Bactria, and he's shot off to Bactria and says, I'm I'm the great king now. I've got and he and he goes off to his heartland, sort of over the Afghan mountains. And Alexander does what most normal people <laughs> Not dream. Most normal people would say, "I finished now. I've, I'm the great king. I shall go and enjoy myself in the palace." But Alexander follows him, doesn't he? He goes all the way over the mountains, past Kabul, yeah. um, this crazy expedition, and captures Bessus. And- yeah, which, 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 in complete contravention to everything that you read in the newspapers, is a, is a roaring success, right? Yes. I mean, it takes yes. him a very long time, but he wins. <laughs> yes, he does. He does, and also he he um, with the the modesty for which he's famed, he founds an enormous number <laughs> of cities. All named um, Alexandria Alexander. after himself, some of which are, you know, famous cities to this day. Oh. So um, Kandahar 
is um, is one of the cities that he founded. Is that Alexandria and Aracosia? Is it? Or is yeah. That what? But Kandahar, yeah. obviously, Sikandar. You know, you can, right. you can see the kind of the derivation. Um, yeah. Ghazni, which becomes a, a crucial, a, a really, really important um, city in the um, the early years of the the Muslim conquest. Um, that's Alexandria in Opiana. Uh, even beyond um, uh, Afghanistan. So further north, you've got Alexandria, Escate, Alexandria the furthest, which is kind of the outer limits of of Greek civilization. And then you have this um, uh, city, Alexandria on the Oxus, which um, after Alexander has died and his general Seleucus takes over the kind of the vast bulk of the Persian Empire, um, there's this kind of renegade satrap who basically casts off his loyalty to uh, to the distant Seleucid Empire and establishes this kingdom, this Bactrian Greek kingdom that survives for for centuries and actually is independent long after long after Greece and the Macedonian realms have been conquered by the Romans. And this is yes, it's like something from a video game, isn't it? It's like something from a, a strategy game. Well I, what I think it's like a science fiction story. It's kind of like those science fiction stories where there are, are, are Earth colonists on Mars and then the Earth blows up and yeah. <laughs> you've only got this colony left. Um, so there's this amazing city that um, they found, I think, in the 70s that were being excavated by French archaeologists when uh, when the Soviets invaded in 1979 and they had to stop. And then they went back in the 90s and again, they had to stop. Um, but it's this extraordinary Greek city. So that's um, that's in the uh, looking at the map. It's the kind of the northeast um, uh, region of of, uh, of what is now Afghanistan in the shadow of the mountains. And it's this great Greek city with theatres and with temples. Is, and is that- it's kind of an amazing um, image of Kibale, who uh, fans oh, of right. the World yes, Cup of Gods will remember yeah. the worst wedding in, in, in the... <laughs> of all time so she's she's portrayed um and this is Ikanum. is it called that's right yes which means lady moon in uzbek apparently right Um, and they found uh, have they found bilingual coins i read amazing so half in one side is in greek and the other side is in a sacred buddhist language or something Um, well what also happens is that 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 gets destroyed i think in uh, one the 140 something like that but right. there is another, there's a kind of Indian Greek kingdom that, that, um, has, uh, is, is, is now in what's northern Pakistan, but, but includes a lot of what is currently Afghanistan. Yeah. And in complex ways that I would not want to, um, uh, tease out because I, I'm really not qualified to do it. Greek cultural artistic influences inform the development of Buddhist art. Yeah, which I've is read starting that. to come up from it? North India into what is now Afghanistan, and there's all this kind of that the smile, the, the, the smile of Apollo becomes the smile of the Buddha. That's absolutely uh, fascinating. I think. Yeah, it's, so it is fascinating, and it's very complicated and it's very controversial. So, I, so <laughs> the listeners can't see this, but I can see that you're nervous about it, which which, which tantalizes me. <laughs> well, it's, um, it, it, it's it's much debated, and I, I wouldn't want to pretend that I. Uh, but in but any at way, this point, Tom. I mean, there's a couple of things that occur to me. One is that um, Alexander did conquer Afghanistan, so you, yes. you can't not conquer as it. As the Persians I mean, had done. As the Persians had done. And the second thing is that it's not, it's clearly not ludicrously violent and lawless, because as you say, the Greco Bactrian kingdom lasts for centuries. Yes. And it gets, and it gets destroyed by kind of, you know, uh, 
nomadic raiders coming in from the north, which is another kind of perpetual theme that Afghanistan yeah. on its northern flank is open to nomadic armies. Um, and that's what wipes out um, Iqanum. Um Yeah. But also the idea that Afghanistan is that you see very much in the newspapers now. Afghanistan is kind of presented as the antithesis of of kind of Western values and so on. But obviously, there's a point in ancient history. It was a a, a haven of Western art and yeah. religion, and you know people stripping off in the gymnasiums and doing what they do, and and into the early mid- Middle Ages as well. So it becomes a kind of one of the great centres of Buddhism. And and the famous place that you know is is Bamiyan with the the, the two extraordinary um, sculptures there that, yes, that go up I think in five fifty uh, AD six ten uh, and you get um, records from, of Chinese travellers you know Buddhists who are coming and they report that the you know there are multitudes of monasteries there in Bamiyan um, that that Buddhism has become I, I think kind of arrives there um, first second centuries AD. And and by the sixth, by the seventh centuries, it's become this great centre for yeah. Buddhist civilization. So absolutely, it's it's um it, it's a meeting place as well as a place where people kind of clash and fight because the um, Silk Road is basically yeah. skirting the northern flank of Afghanistan, isn't it? So the Bukhara, Tashkent, Kiva, Samarkand. I mean, they're they're to the north, but obviously their influence must. Come but, south and into the Bamiyan is in the mountains, and I think it's it's on a road that enables the, the kind of you know there's a mountain route that takes you to China as well. So that's right. that's its, yeah. its significance, and that's why Ch- people from China, you know, Buddhists from China, come and and meet there. But then, of course, um, it's not good news for Buddhism in the long run because um, with the emergence of Islam, you have Islamic armies turning up, and actually right. takes quite a long time for what will become Afghanistan to be Islamized. Yeah. Um, so the, um, the, the the first great Islamic kingdom has as its focus Ghazni, which is uh, Alexandria in, in Opiana, this Alexandrian foundation. Um, and it's, uh, this, 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 this is the kind of the first great Islamic kingdom. But even then it's, it's, um, it's open to all kinds of invasions. So <laughs> the 1150, it gets sacked by this terrifying Tajik conqueror who calls himself the World Burner. The World Burner. It's very the World Burner. Kind of Game of Thrones type nickname. Well, it's so okay. So it's so Game of Thrones. He he makes the, the the inhabitants carry the earth of their sacked city to his capital, which is a place called Firoz Ko in the mountains of Gore. Oh, I'm just reading that, that off. I have yeah, no idea that where that is, but it sounds great. And they they carry this the soil of uh, Ghazni all the way to Firoz Co in the mountains of Gore. Um, and you know what the uh, the world burner does then? Um, he covers them with the soil or something. Or- no, he butchers them and he oh, mixes right. their blood with the soil. And he right. uses it as nice. uh, mortar to build victory towers. Wow, that is, yeah. So if we're giving the impression that this is all, you know, that that in the medieval time, it's all hippies hanging out. Yeah, it is. I mean, there is an enormous amount of of slaughter going on. Yes, but Uh, as there is everywhere, to be fair. I mean, it's not like there's not lots of slaughter elsewhere. But I think think the sense that at any moment, (laughs) terrifying hordes of invaders, kind of Dothraki-type invaders, might sweep down. Uh, I mean, that is, (laughs) you know, you you compared it to a computer game. That is the... (laughs) 
that is the jeopardy that might strike at any minute. And of course, the famous ones are the Mongols. So when do they, what, what point do they pitch up? So they've come up, they've conquered China, presumably, and they haven't yet I don't got think, to Europe. No, I think, I think, um, I, th- I think that, uh, that Afghanistan is the first target. Oh, right. Okay. I think. Be- because of I, the wealth of its cities and so on, I suppose. No, because they insult Genghis Khan's ambassadors. Oh, that's absolute folly. I think Genghis Khan sends ambassadors saying, let's be friends. And, um, the, uh, the, people always the, the do that ha- with the Mongols, don't they? Don't they do that in Baghdad and places like that? They say, ah, they're, they're, they're inconsequential. We can but just they, insult them with they, impunity. They singe the beards of the, uh, the Mongol ambassadors and send Very, them back to yeah. Genghis Khan. That's reckless. Which is not, not sensible. And so. Right. <laughs> everything, it all goes horribly wrong. So, so you mentioned the Hazaras. So they yeah. are, they, they are kind of almost certainly Mongols who, who are part of this kind of suite and they're up in the mountains. And they become right. they become Shia Muslims. Yeah, and that's why the the Buddhas of Bamiyan survive, because the Shia are much more tolerant of uh, of statuary and visual representation. Yeah, if they were Sunni Muslim, perhaps they'd be less tolerant of the uh, of the statues. But there they are. So that's a part a further part of the kind of the mix of of uh, of what will become Afghanistan. So at this point, there's no sense of Afghanistan as Afghanistan. It's no. merely a province of other people's empires, by and large. I, I, I'm not sure that people would even be thinking in terms of provinces. I mean, it's it, it's peoples, it's cities, um, and you have this kind of constant swirl of empires that rise and fall. So you also have Timur. So that's Tamerlane. That's Tamerlane, t- yeah. Timur the Lame, hero of Marlowe's great... Uh, Great play. Is it not passing brave to be a king and ride in triumph through Persepolis? Um, but Very he also good. rides in triumph through many of the great cities of um, Afghanistan. One of the one of the cool things that his troops do is that they um, they toboggan down the side of a mountain on their shields. That's very impressive. Is, yeah, yeah. It's very impressive, isn't it? It's both fearsome and um, and, and pleasingly childlike. Yes, exactly. So, so these kind of you know these these cycles of um, kind of terrifyingly imperially minded um, warlords coming from the north uh, culminates in uh, the Mughals. But before you go on to the Mughals, Tom, the Timur, the Tamerlane, Timur. Am I not right in thinking that um, under the Timurid rule, Herat or Afghanistan was was a very successful, buoyant place, and that Herat in particular, which is an Alexandrian foundation alexander in area i think um that rob i mean robert byron the great travel writer sort of classic early 20th century travel writer in his book the road to oxiana he says you know herat is amazing it's beautiful it's the the florence of the kind of eastern world and they are all sort of you know doing astronomy and you know building lovely minarets and and all this sort of stuff so at that point afghanistan is actually or what becomes afghanistan is very civilized, right? I, I think it's yeah, it's it's this fusion of of um, all these various peoples who've come down and and Persia. So right. it, it, you know these are these are great monuments to the enduring influence of Persian civilization, and Herat, Kandahar. You know these are. It, it's easy to go from the heartland, the Persian heartlands, up. You know there are no mountains in the way blocking you off, and. So the Persian influence is so strong and so overwhelming that, yeah. that that's really what these cities are monuments to, I think. Although I've never been to them. I mean, okay. it's, it's a kind of enduring 
dream to go and visit them ever since. Probably not. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, Oxiana, I wouldn't book a holiday. Not the time now. Not the Why time now. now. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, I mean, and in a way, when, when I suppose when you, you know, you kind of conjure up images of, uh, of, of Central Asia, those are the, you know, the, the, the great mosques, the great yeah. towers, the great monuments. Those are what come into, into your mind. And absolutely, I mean, that's a crucial part of the history of what will become Afghanistan. And we keep saying what will become Afghanistan because it hasn't yet become yeah. Afghanistan. Uh, and that's really why it, it, it's, it's the moguls. Yes, yeah, sorry, I took you off uh, from the moguls. Who are, are kind of the link between that medieval world and, and the world of the early modern that will become in due course the, the, the world of, of, of British India and indeed of Tsarist Russia. Yeah. So, so, so the, the, the key figure of the Mughals, the founder is um, a guy called Babur, who claims to descent from both Genghis Khan and Tamburlaine. And he's, I think he's kind of temp- contemporary of Henry VIII, Francis I, Charles V, all those kind of early yeah. 16th century guys in, in Europe. Um, and he is he feel, he feels that he 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 basically identifies with um not with he he doesn't look south he looks north so he he feels that he's been exiled from Samarkand the towers of Samarkand he wants them back and he has this kind of irredentist yearning he wants to to, to reclaim them but instead he ends up conquering Kabul right and this is really where Kabul enters the the story and Kabul provides easy access down into the, the flatlands of the south, into into the the, the Punjab and so to Pakistan, North India. Basically. Yeah, into what will become Pakistan. Um and he conquers Kabul and he praises it to a place where you can go in a single day to a place where the snow never falls and in two hours you can also reach a place where the snow never melts. So oh, hi, very good. something for all tastes. Yeah. And he spends two decades um basically consolidating his his rule in Kabul. And then he does uh, he does what anyone would do after two years, two decades of consolidating rule in in uh, Kabul. He conquers Delhi. Right. Wow. So so he's a very, I mean, little known in the West, but obviously an enormously impressive empire builder. To go Kabul to Delhi is a, I mean, that's yeah. not a small, you know, that's not a small hop. It's a, quite a leap. Yeah. And, and and so from that point on, the Mughals basically are centred in Delhi. And yeah. Kabul becomes peripheral. I mean, it, it, it serves as a summer capital. So on occasion, the Mughal emperors will go up to, to Kabul to get away from the heats of the, of the Indian plains. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not the centre of gravity. Uh, and that, of course, is uh, basically what then sets up the great dramas of the, uh, of the 18th and 19th century. Yeah. So that gives you a sense, doesn't it, of Afghanistan being pulled in different directions. So you've, you talked about Persia, but obviously then India. I mean, presumably, once you've got the Mughal Empire, then you've the centre of gravity has moved has moved south towards India, and you get a sense, don't you, of the this is a, at that point of, that you made about at the crossroads being pulled and di- there are different cultural influences, but obviously there are different imperial powers who see this as a important part of their sort of you know their realm, their hegemony. Yeah. So by the 18th century, to the north, you've got Tsarist Russia. Yeah. which is starting to expand southwards. Um, you've got the, the decaying empire of the Mughals in North India. Which is being and eaten it, by the East India Company. Isn't, is yeah, it? But, also, yeah. but also by Persia. And you remember the episode on um, the, the East India Company where this terrifying Persian conqueror, Nadir Shah, suddenly, 
storms out of Persia, defeats the Mughals at the great Battle of Karnal in 1739 and captures Delhi and basically carts off the entire Mughal treasury to Persia. And that enables uh, Nadir Shah to establish himself as probably, the, you know, the ruler of the greatest empire of, of the 1750s. You know, he's yeah. th- this incredible power. And one of the... um one of the kind of the, the, the warlords who gets absorbed into his empire um, is a, a guy called Ahmed Khan. And he is, um, he's a, a, a Pashtun uh, from the region of Kandahar. So he is in the, the kind of the, the south of the kind of the great central mountain range of, of, of Afghanistan. And he, rather like the Ottomans kind of take, uh, you know, conquer children into uh, into their train and train them to be, be janissaries. He he's the son of a, a conquered opponent who is in the train of um, of Nadir Shah. And in 1747, Nadir Shah is assassinated in northern Persia, and um, Ahmed Khan is with a kind of posse of of, of fellow Pashtuns, and they grab the uh, the Kohinoor. which is you know the great, the great diamond, diamond. Yeah. that Nadir Shah had taken from the Mughals. And he takes it and a whole load of treasure up to Kandahar. And he uses the treasure. He parcels the treasure out to all the kind of various warlords. And he establishes himself as, you know, the, 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 the big cheese. And this really is where Afghanistan starts to emerge. I mean, Afghanistan is, is, is not a word that the Afghans themselves use, but Afghan is the, the Persian word for Pashtun. Right. So you've got a Pashtun empire or kingdom. For the first time, yeah. and the word Afghan is 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 an ancient one in Persia. So uh, the the Sassanid Empire, which is the, the the great empire that emerges on the um, the eastern flank of the Roman Empire in the third century AD, in, in those early years, so back in the third century AD, you have inscriptions referring to Afghans as as okay. the people who right. uh, you know who, who who live it around what will become Kandahar, and um, intriguingly. Just as in the West, you have kind of, you know, the Irish or the Scots or whoever lay claim uh, to a descent from biblical figures. So also do the Afghans. Who are they descended from? Well, they they claim to be descended from somebody called Afghana, who is the grandson of the biblical king Saul. And who was the uh, the chief general under Solomon. Is that, I don't remember him. No, it's completely made up. (laughs) Right. He's, He's a completely made up figure. Okay. To explain why they're called Afghans, um, but you do. Saul the, wouldn't it, be the person I'd choose because isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he, he comes he, to a horrible end. Yeah, <laughs> I mean he's not the first person from the Bible I'd, I'd choose to descent from. Well, whatever. But he's still biblical, which is quite okay. classy. And so, in, and so, through the 16th and 17th centuries into the 18th century, you do have these traditions that the Pashtuns are actually descended from the from the Israelites. Well, that, the I did lost not, tribes of Israel. I, I did not know that. That's a very um, that's that's bizarre. I don't, I don't but, think something the Taliban really major on. No, the fact that no, they're all actually all. No, I can't imagine that from going the tribes of Israel. But uh, but that was that was a kind of enduring um, story. And, and so you 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 know it's it's so interesting how in in uh, in the Islamic world, as in the kind of early medieval Christian world, you have. This kind of desire for emergent peoples, emergent empires, to lay claim to this kind of ancient pedigree yeah. is, is you know, it's something that kind of joins East and West. Really, really, really interesting. Um, 
and it be- becomes important for this guy, uh, Ahmed Khan, um, who takes on the name Duri Duran, the Pearl of Pearls. And he disguises the fact that basically his tribe is taking over by changing um, the name of his tribe to Durrani. So, you know. The Pearl of Pearls. I might, I might choose that. I, I might start, guys. I might start referring to myself as that. I think that's a good yeah, it's, it's a magnificent title, yeah. isn't it? And so he, he established this kind of Durrani kingship, um, which basically, you know, wedged in between Persia, wedged in between uh, the Mughal Empire, wedged in between Russia. It, it, it's starting to take on some of the lineaments of, of modern Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, it's actually larger than, than modern Afghanistan. So it includes a, a, a large chunk of what is now Pakistan. But it's a very, you know, it's, it's for the first time you're getting a kind of Afghan polity. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and Duri Duran is very successful. Duran Duran is perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't had a Duran Duran reference for uh, many episodes. So I'm glad that we, I wouldn't have expected this would be the place we get it in, but, uh, I'm yeah, glad, unexpected development. I'm glad you've, you know, you've surprised me. And do you know how he dies? Um, uh, he's eaten by a wolf. No, he's, um, no, no, no. He, he has an ulcer on his nose and it goes septic. Oh, that's kind of. But so not so horrible. His yeah. nose gets eaten up, ulcerates. Right. Okay. I'm sure there's some metaphor there, but I don't know what it's for. Um, so this sort of cues up the great game because the great game is coming, isn't it? Um, it does because what happens is that his his descendants, his grandson, his son, and his grandson, they lose territory to the emergent Sikh Empire. Yeah. And you remember we had Satnam Sangera on we did. talking about. Uh, the just of imperialism unbelievably and, formidable the sikhs are well and we we, we asked that now how, how did um you know how did how did people feel about sikh imperialism and we know how the afghans felt about sikh imperialism which is namely that they weren't in favor of it right <laughs> because the sikhs nicked a vast swathe of their territory and so the son and the grandson of of uh durani um were very keen to get it back uh, and they failed yeah. And so that's part of the context. Um, and as you say, this is part of a much larger game, which involves, of course, Persia to the south, Cyrus Russia to the north, but now increasingly what we have to describe as British India. Yes, of course. Because, I mean, this is the great game, isn't it? And some of our listeners will have read those books by Peter Hopkirk. Wonderful books. I remember reading them when I was a teenager and just being utterly captivated. These stories of... British agents or East India Company agents kind of crossing these mountain passes and descending on these carnates. Uh, they're basically James Bond figures. They um, are. And anyone who has read Willie Dalrymple's Return of a King will know that this is absolutely the, the kind of the, the context for the first British invasion of Afghanistan, which goes horribly wrong and which we will, Willie will be on tomorrow's show yeah. talking about that. So I hope that this first half of, t- of today's episode has served basically to kind of set that up. Um, so do make sure if you've, uh, you know, do make sure to, to tune into that episode tomorrow with Willie, um, because uh, I, I hope we've kind of provided the, the setting for it. Um, I think we should have a break now. And I think that when we, we come back, we should look at not the first Afghan war, because uh, Willie will be talking about that, but about the second and third Afghan yes. wars, and then the history of Afghanistan in the 20th century and into the 21st. Yes, so, a very um, dark but fascinating story. So We'll be back soon. See you then. See you then. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. 
it can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I've got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. It appears that, as the result of two successful campaigns, of the employment of an enormous force and of the expenditure of large sums of money, all that has yet been accomplished has been the disintegration of the state, which it was desired to see strong, friendly and independent. That was Lord Hartingdon, Secretary of State for India in the Liberal government, writing in 1880, after the second Afghan war of 1878 to 79. And Dominic, it has um, a certain kind of echo there, isn't there? Yeah, there is. So um, second Afghan war, they go in and basically it goes much better than the first one. Yes. So the great game, basically, for people who don't know, is this sort of strange um, game of chess between Tsarist Russia, which is expanding to Central Asia, and British India. And the British in particular are paranoid about Russian, that the Russians are going to use Afghanistan as a kind of launch pad to attack Come down through the Khyber Pass, as so many had done before. So it becomes incredibly important to them to keep Afghanistan as this kind of, as a, as a, as a, as a kind of neutral buffer state. And they're absolutely paranoid about Russian influence. So the first Afghan war, which we're going to be talking to Willie Dalrymple about tomorrow, they send this mission, which goes horribly wrong and becomes the great defining debacle of kind of mid-Victorian imperialism. It's this immortalized in paintings and, and literature and, and all that sort of stuff. Then the second war. Now, this is one that you don't often see referred to in, in kind of newspaper columns now because it was a success, relative success anyway. They want to basically, the Russians have penetrated through Central Asia. They've taken Bukhara, they've taken Samarkand and Kiva and all these kind of Silk Road carnates. And, and the British want to force on the Afghans a British mission. So that basically the Russians won't have the ear of the, of the Afghan king. And the, the, the Afghans say, well, no, we don't want, we can quite happily live without British, um, sort of diplomats in Kabul telling us what to do. So the British make, they have two goes. So in 1878, they, they have what seems to be a success and they install a guy called Sir Louis Cavagnari. Um, uh, but then he's massacred. <laughs> so they have to come back in 1880. This is where Dr. Watson is involved, yes. uh, Sherlock yes. Holmes in the fifth Northumberland, uh, fusiliers. He's shot in either the, the, the leg or the shoulder, depending on which Conan Doyle story you, you read. It kind of the bullet moves about during the Holmes <laughs> cannon. Um, but this is actually quite successful. Um, so the second mission is successful. 
And in 1893, there's a thing called the Durand Line, which is the line between Afghanistan and Pakistan. I know all about this. Do you? Is it some yes. cricket? No, it isn't. It's to do with bird watching. <laughs> That's an so, unexpected. Uh, yeah, it is. So, so, so it's the Durand Line is named after Sir Mortimer Durand. It is who indeed. Was the guy who did it. Yeah. And the reason that they commissioned him to do it was because he was a keen bird watcher. And so he could combine touring bird the watch. mountains with, with bird watching. Well, this is a, a fascinating thing. You know, everyone knows about the Sykes-Picot Agreement, the end of the First World War. But this is, again, one of these lines that, 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 that the legacy lingers because this divides the Pashtun people between the northwest frontier of pa- what becomes Pakistan and Afghanistan. And actually, that creates a lingering sore in, in Afghan politics. So even in the 1970s, later the 1970s, there are Afghan politicians who still want the revision of the Duran line. And this explains, by the way, this is one of the factors in Pakistani intervention and influence in 1970s, 1980s Afghanistan. Yeah. And it, and it means it, it explains why it's impossible for, for Afghan politics to be divorced and separated from what's going on in northern Pakistan. Exactly, exactly, because the Pakistan because the Pakistani government are always going to be intervening because they are always anxious about keeping that borderline. They don't want they don't want to lose those provinces um, to Afghanistan. And it's all the fault of Sir Mortimer Durand, who well from India, and he retired to Rock and um, to Rock. Wrote, but he retired to Rock in Cornwall, sort of and, David Cameron holiday destination. Yes, and and wrote books about cormorants. Right. So so he I lived mean, happily ever after anyway. Classic <laughs> British, British imperial story. Yeah. So that's the second Afghan war. That's Dr. Johnson's uh Dr. Johnson's what about Dr. Johnson? Dr. Can't imagine Dr. Johnson fighting in an Afghan war. That's Dr. Watson's Afghan war. And and it's it's after that that you have the most fame probably the single most famous thing ever written about Afghanistan, which is the man who would be king, Kipling's short story. So in, in that story, you have these two characters. I mean, you must know this, Tom. Peachy Carner. fabulous and, story. And Daniel Dravot. And off they go to Kafiristan, which interestingly, in the story is pagan. And in reality, was pagan. It was not yet. So um, Kafirs are people who are non-Muslim. Exactly. And there was a place called Kafiristan. It's now Nuristan. And um, famously, it all goes wrong. You know, and the story is often seen as this great metaphor for British, British imperialism. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, but that kind of creates that image, doesn't it, of Afghanistan as lawless and as a place that Where Westerners adventurers can go and carve out kingdom. Carve out a kingdom, so, but yeah. they'll then, it'll end horribly and they'll be killed on a bridge and crucified and, yeah. and all the th- terrible things that happen to the two characters, Michael Caine and, um, uh, and Sean, Sean Connery. Connery. Yeah. Um, so then there's a the third Afghan war. British Anglo-Afghan War. This is one that the Afghans actually unusually start. So at the end of the First World War, I don't know why they why they waited till the end of the First World War. I do not know. They'd had five, you know, they'd had the best part of five years when they ought to have struck, and they wait till it's over, and then they decide to make their move when the British are no longer distracted. Um, and it, and it's really a sort of internal Afghan thing. There's a leader called Amanullah Khan, and he's trying to shore up his power base. So he decides to launch a little invasion of British India. The British hit back. They use air power. It's one of the first instances of, of bombing of a, of a city. So a single plane goes and bombs Kabul. It causes great panic and terror among the local population. And it's a tactical British win. They, they, bite, they fight back the, um, the invasion. But for the Afghans, it's quite, a, it's quite a moment because they've kind of gone toe-to-toe with the British. They have asserted their independence. They force the British to agree that 
they'll no longer influence Afghanistan's foreign policy, which the British have been doing in the late Victorian Edwardian period. And it sort of paves the way for the, the, the interesting thing is that paves the way for actually what's quite a golden period for Afghanistan. So, so Amalullah, I mean, he, he's a, a kind of, um, almost an Ataturk figure, isn't he? He's absolutely, he's, he wants to be very into, I mean, you know, the, the irony is, is that they've banished the British, but actually he is the kind of, you know, he wants to westernize. He does Af- exactly. Afghanistan and the totemic policy, which is, which is obviously, uh, a fracture line that, that runs through modern Afghan history right the way up to the present day is around the emancipation of women. The veil in particular. You're absolutely yeah. right about education and the veil. And that runs right through Afghan history from Amanullah right through, um, the, the most famous exponent, I suppose, uh, well, one of the most famous is Mohammed Zahir Shah, who is king from 1933 to 73. He's another modernizer. And you can see Afghanistan in the, as you, exactly as you say, in, in the context of other countries that are trying to do the same thing, that have this sort of, there's this pressure to modernize, to build universities, to build schools, to westernize because Western values are, are seen but by, also, by elites as, as modernity. But also the inevitable kickback. So, of course, so, so, so Amanullah gets kicked out, doesn't he? After he does a while, indeed. A There's decade. a civil war at the end yeah. of the 1920s, and, and so, he, he has the first air. He's the first person to be airlifted out. Yes. So the British send a plane and get him out. Exactly. So, so that's sort of setting up a bit of a template. But actually, you know what? Zahir Shah, who rules from 1933 to 73, he's pretty successful. So for 40 years, there is a much more gradual period of modernization. So they start to build universities. They import foreign advisors. This is the sort of heyday in the sixties of the hippie trail of Afghanistan being actually a peaceful place that you go on the way to, on the way to India as a sort of sidetrack from India. In 1964, there's a constitution that has universal suffrage, that has women's rights, political parties and so on. So Afghanistan is not by any means, it's, it, it's not a basket case. Um, it's not a kind of metaphor for violence and lawlessness. In the sort of early Cold War, but as in so, so many places, well, the wrong? pressure pressure is pressures grow. You have a you have university educated elites who are pushing for greater change. You have people in the countryside who are more resistant to change, who feel they're being left behind, who become anxious about what they see as corruption and so on. And so, basically, um, in nineteen seventy three, the king's cousin, who is a man called Mohammed Daoud Khan who I think is, I would say, is a pretty disastrous figure in Afghan history. He he launches a coup. So the king is away. He's gone to India for an eye operation, and he's gone to recuperate on the island of Ischia. um, Oh, Italy, yeah. Yes, and he's in Ischia, and his cousin launches this coup um, and sets himself up as – now, you mentioned Ataturk. Um, Dawood undoubtedly sees himself as a kind of Ataturk. He is going to be the father of the nation – um, I think he has a title like Father of the Nation or something. And he is going to drag Afghanistan, kicking and screaming, into into the light of the kind of modern age. So scrapping the veil, for example, is one of his sort of trademark policies. And there's also an element of um, he's previously been quite a pro-Soviet figure. So Afghanistan has always trod a balancing, sort of trod a tightrope between the USA and the USSR in this period in the Cold War. And it's said of Dowd that he liked to light his American cigarettes with Soviet matches. Um, that's the way to balance the, uh, yes, the communist I mean, and the capitalist blocks, isn't it? But, but I mean, as is often the way, you know, when you've had one coup, well, why not have another? 
he only lasts five years, and then the communists, the local communists, turn against him. And um, and then you have this incredibly confused, bizarre period um, where the communists, there's a local communist party, the PDPA, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, is in charge. And it's under these fellows who are constantly plotting against each other and kind of killing each other. And there's and the and the Communist Party itself is is riven with factionalism. There are two main. And Dominic, groups. by this point, the monarchy is has been terminated. It's gone. Yeah, Zahir Shah has been kicked out in seventy three, and it hasn't been. Daoud wasn't king. He was okay, so he the dictator. Right. Um, so the Communist Party itself, and this is really important because it tees up some of what we see to this day, is divided between different groups. So there are two main factions. There's one called the Kalk which is very popular among rural um, Pashtuns, the kind of people now who support the Taliban. And the other um, faction is called Parcham, and that's more popular among their the, the urban. They are ta- uh, Tajiks, Uzbeks, and so on. They're university educated. So you have that tension, which is right there. Just like Brexit. Day. Sorry? Like Brexit. Uh, Brexit. That wasn't... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I suppose so. The Guardian readers and the Daily Express readers. Is that yeah. your sort of claim? Your well, I'm just so. trying to put it in. You know, it's a 70s Afghan politics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a terrible, it's a terrible comparison. Forget it. Anyway, anyway, they all, they all start killing each other, um, the leaders. So the first leader, Taraki, he is suffocated after a coup. And next guy comes in, Havizullah Amin. He's got a, he's got an MA in, uh, in education from Columbia University. Oh, fatal. But he's a very bad man. He's a terrible. No, is that you'd think that makes him sort of slightly weak and weedy. Quite the opposite. He oh. is a very brutal man. So he he says, you know, we must really drag Afghanistan into the modern age, and he arrests tens of thousands of people. He has a personality cult. Now, here's a really interesting and important thing that will surprise some listeners. I think the Soviet Union are not at all encouraging this. They don't like this at all. Why not? Because they can, I mean, the people in the Soviet Union in the late 70s, uh, they're, they're all aged 184. They're all they're kind of, they're, they're, all, <laughs> they're kind of Brezhnev, Gromyko, Kosygin. They're old men and they know, you know, you don't rush things. You don't charge in. They're very, they're actually very small C conservative. And they're constantly saying to Armin, don't do all this. this is madness. You know, you're going to completely upset everything. You're going to provoke a massive reaction. And do you think that, that, I mean, because I think it isn't Macmillan. Is advising Douglas Home don't invade Afghanistan. I mean, it's kind of you know, it's a kind of passing message from British Prime Minister to his successor: right. don't invade Afghanistan. Whatever you do, don't. Whatever you do, don't. There's do surely it. very it's... little chance of Sir Alec Douglas Home invading <laughs> no, Afghanistan. Well, exactly. But this is obviously a kind of you know, it's the, it's it's Prime Minister from Prime Minister: yeah. don't invade Afghanistan. It's the same thing. It's absolutely kind of folk true. memory in Russia. You know, um, well, ab- do the not Russians, invade it. But this is a complete misapprehension in the West and continues to this day that the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan because they're kind of, you know, they're like Hitler in the 1930s. This is not the case at all. Armin is constantly saying, because his policies provoke such resistance in the Afghan countryside, um, and there's, it creates a massive insurgency. And he's constantly saying to the, to the Kremlin, send me loads of troops. Come and help me kill all these people. And, and the Kremlin constantly say, no, we, this is the last thing we want to do is get involved in Afghanistan. I mean, at one point, they, but the KGB decide this guy is a complete loose cannon. This is 1979. This guy's a complete loose cannon. We'll get his chef to, they, they get a chef to poison him, but disastrously, they don't tell the Soviet embassy. So <laughs> the Soviet doctors save him. <laughs> so after he's been poisoned by his chef. So we get to the end of 1979. It's all really kind of everything's going to pot. Now, already, 
the United States and Pakistan are funding the insurgency. So this is before that a single Soviet tank has rolled across the river. And the insurgency um, is Islamist. Yes. So Islam is obviously part. Well, it's not purely Islamist. Islam is a huge part of it. And Islam proves a very good way of transcending the tribal and ethnic yeah. divisions. I mean, that's the power and of the Islamism. class traditions and the class. Exactly. So Islam is what binds it binds you in opposition to the infidel um, invader. But as but, you say, really important to emphasize that the divisions are not just between Islam and not, secular modernity. Not. It's class, yeah. ethnic. I mean, every rural and so urban, many rural and urban. All those things run yeah. through Afghan history or modern Afghan history. So you get to the end of 1979. Now, the, the, the conversations the Soviet guys have are so fascinating. You can read about them online in declassified documents. They know it's like Vietnam. They absolutely know that. And for a long time, the Red Army and the KGB, their analysts have been saying, the last thing we should do is send troops to Afghanistan. This is, this would be a very, very bad move. And again and again, Gromyko and Kasigan, who are the two kind of, I mean, Brezhnev is basically a walking corpse. So they're the kind of decision makers. They say, no, this is a very, very bad idea. We shouldn't do it. And the reason they do it, Tom, is because they're so alarmed by the insurgency and by Pakistani and US so funding it's a for classic. insurgency. But also the Iranian revolution has happened by yeah, now. Yeah, of course. So they're worried about Islam, Islamism coming up through Afghanistan into Central Asia. So they invade Afghanistan as the least worst option. And the plan is, you know, they don't want to conquer it and kind of sow salt on the in the ruins of Kabul and parade the skulls of their defeated enemies. All they want to do is get in, kill Armin, who's clearly a complete head case, install a friendly government, get out and forget all about it. And as we all know, um, as they had feared, as some of them had feared, it goes Rambo horrendously. Arrives. Or James Bond gets involved in the Living yeah, Daylight. So the, the elite Dalton. of the uh, American <laughs> yes. spy agencies and special forces. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's a horrible, horrible war. The Soviet Union at their peak have one hundred and ten thousand troops um, in nineteen eighty five. It's a classic Vietnam pattern. They they hold the cities. They launch search and destroy missions with helicopters. But it doesn't really work partly because of the terrain that we've talked about, partly because, you know, as we've seen in the last 20 years, particularly in the countryside, a lot of people just hate the thought of a corrupt urban government following the orders of its kind of foreign puppet masters. You get Muslim volunteers coming in from funded by Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, most famously Osama bin Laden. Um, you get American. I mean, the Americans are putting in at the peak $600 million a year. This guy Charlie Wilson. Charlie Wilson's war is paid by yes, Tom and Hanks. Yeah, and they're, they're fe- and and all the, uh, the the people who subsequently will be excoriated as the enemies of America are fated as friends of freedom. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, at one point Reagan welcomes Mujahideen to the White House. Yeah. Now these are not the Taliban. A lot of these people are the people the Taliban will be will be fighting against. But basically, well, they're warlords, quite, aren't they? They're I mean, warlords. They're, so they're they warlords. they also are, they have. Um, they're kind of feudal figures, a lot of they're, them. Exactly. They're, they're kind of um, tribal leaders, gangsters. Um, but I mean, warlords is exactly the word. I mean, the classic it. one's Marshal Dostum. Yeah, he changes sides about who, every... I mean, he's still involved now, isn't he? He's, he yes, changes well, they, sides they, they, about they, once the, every the two Taliban years. The Taliban occupied his palace and were, you know, trying the, turning the gold taps and things. But, but I mean, he, he, he has changed sides so often. He's an Uzbek. And he has changed sides. He's very popular with the Uzbek community, but I think in, and in northern in, in northern Afghanistan. So, yes. so there's also the, geog- the geography kicks in again that the 
that you know the Taliban heartlands are in the south, right? Yeah, and, exactly around Kandahar. And, yeah. So the Russian invasion, I mean, it's utterly brutalizing for all involved. It definitely sort of destabilizes things in Russia itself, and in, particularly actually in Ukraine, about one in four. Of the soldier, of the Red Army soldiers, are Ukrainians, but the casualties are enormous. I mean, you know, there's at least a million Afghans. Some say two million die. Um, actually, among the Soviets, the official figures say about fourteen thousand, but it's probably much more. It's just a horrible, horrible war. As and it ends was. horribly, doesn't it? With it does Bulla, Yes, the, <laughs> although he lasted the- longer, I have to say. I mean, quite a few people have pointed this out online in in recent days. The Russian, the Soviet. Client regime lasts longer than the the coalition backed. But he ends up regime. he ends up being um, tortured and castrated. He does in and hung um, from a telegraph pole. Yeah, although he falls, there's a slight hiatus, a slight confusing story. He's toppled, but then he hangs around Najibullah, and he does an extraordinary thing. Actually, Tom, he hangs around after he's he's toppled in 1992 by the warlords, but then he hangs around a Kabul translating the works of Peter Hopkirk into English. That's unexpected. Yeah. He comes really interested in in Afghan history, translates the great game. The Taliban pitch up in 1996. And as you say, they they mutilate, torture, castrate him. And and that's the end of him. So the Taliban, so people often say the Taliban are medieval, but that's not right. The Taliban are very modern. The Taliban originate in reaction to the chaos of the Soviet war and its aftermath, and in particular, the warlordism. So they've got appeal among ethnic Pashtuns. Their appeal among people who think there's too much corruption, um, the sort of depredations of the warlords. They provide basic services. There's also a kind of class element. Yeah. And of you course, know, they, they, a- they are the, the, the people rising up against the Afid elites. Yeah. And there's, there's also a kind of weird, um, sexual dimension to it that often doesn't get covered in the Western press where the narrative is almost entirely about, um, women. And the way in which, uh, you know, women are secluded under the Taliban, it's notorious. It's the thing that, that the Taliban are most notorious for. But of course, what that also means is that um, men are separated from women. And so there's this lengthy tradition in Afghanistan, you know, and this this kind of seclusion of women is is one that goes back for many, many centuries of of men taking young boys and training them as dancers. And the boys kind of dress up in, you know, female dancing silks and yeah. bells and things. Um, and this is kind of an accepted part of, of Afghan culture. But the warlords who it, defeat the communists in, in that incredibly brutal war, they use this tradition basically as a way to kind of engage in, in pedophile rape. Um, and so for, for, for large numbers of, um, Taliban supporters, the anxiety is, What's going to happen not to their daughters but to their sons? And Mullah Omar, I mean, the the, the kind of the foundational myth ar- around the emergence of the Taliban is that that he takes two men who are raping a boy and he executes them, he he hangs them, and this is what kind of provides the the you know lights the the, the moral fuse that enables the the Taliban yeah. to, to burst, and and this is something that has been a kind of rumbling source of discontent in Afghanistan throughout the period of the American occupation is that basically the Americans have been turning a blind eye to the way in which a lot of their kind of Afghan supporters have been carrying on this tradition. Well, I think, I mean, I think that the story of the Taliban for a historian is a fascinating story because clearly, you know, 
they haven't survived for as long as they have. They haven't in, they haven't survived defeat by the Americans or apparent defeat in 2001. And then all this long period of the insurgency just because they are sort of supervillains. Um, they have an appeal They're they're rooted in that kind of southern Afghan, Pashtun, rural kind of heartland. But also their Islamism allows them to, to, to bring in other people as well. Um, so people who've been radicalized and so on. And as you say, I mean, there's a fascinating, I read a fascinating report yesterday by the Carnegie Endowment for Peace. I've written in 2009, very prescient, in which the author, who is a, a French specialist on the Taliban called Gilles Daronsoro, he basically says, you know, the Taliban, are com- we're completely underestimating them. They're anti-corruption. They provide rural services. They have the rhetoric of resistance to infidel invaders. They have, they play on people's distrust of the cities and of modernity. And obviously they appeal to people's kind of rural, ethnic, kind of traditional identity. And that's something that clearly has an, had an appeal and had a potency that the coalition um, forces just never really managed to overcome. But, um, and, and the coalition forces were always playing the game that previous colonial invasions have played, which is to occupy the cities. Yeah. The you know, Afghans don't want to meet modern westernized armies in the field. I mean, that's true going all the way back to, to 1842. They melt into the countryside and then they just, you know, slowly throttle the cities. Yeah. And that's basically what's happened this time around as well. And, and also, of course, all the money that flowed into, you know, flowed into Afghanistan, the aid money, the American money and so on, it created a great sense of corruption, um, which again played into everything that the Taliban had been saying since the 1990s. And of course, it's true. Well, you know, they had this incredible slogan um, on the uh, slogan on the Ministry for Prevention of Vice and Promotion of Virtue. Throw reason to the dogs. It stinks of corruption. Wow. Yeah. Very uh, (laughs) anti-enlightenment. Yes. So, Tom, obviously we've gone on far too long and uh, it's been a real whistle-stop tour, but I think it'd be weird to end without a few reflections about intervention and imperialism. So do you think the Afghan... The fa- I mean, it has been a failure. There's no doubt about it. I mean, there's no way you can spin it as a success. Joe Biden was always against continuing the, the Afghan occupation and the intervention. He famously was a critic of it from a very quite an early stage. Do you think he's right? Do you think he's been sort of? Do you think the collapse of the Afghan government proves that intervention just doesn't work? Western intervention in this way. I, I don't feel qualified to opine on that um, I, because I don't know enough about the state of of Afghanistan to know whether it would have been possible for um, a stable government to be established um, for for, for some of the um, the the corruption and the um, the 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 things that were offensive to um, to many Afghans to be cured and, and I don't know whether um, it would have been possible for those routes to go down had, um, you know, the Americans retained their presence there. Um, but I, th- I have no doubt that it was an imperial venture. I mean, it seems to me absolutely part of a continuum reaching back, you know, to the first Afghan war. Yeah. And in a sense, the, you know, the, the, the great trauma in the West is what, what will happen to, to women. Um, and, and that's been a, 
a bone of contention in Afghanistan, as we've said, you know, for at least a century, it's the kind of the great lightning rod um, for tension between um, westernized elites and uh, people out in the fields. And the, 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 in a sense, that fusion of kind of real politique, you know, we've got to be in Afghanistan to stop um, Al Qaeda bedding down or whatever. And we've got to be in Afghanistan to promote the cause of female emancipation and to preserve gender equality. That is absolutely part of the the imperial tradition. It is. You know, yes, it's it's right. the fusion of idealism and real politique that was part of British imperialism and remains today part of uh, American imperialism. But it's arguably a weakness, I would say. Um, if you're half idealistic, half real politique, you can sort of fall between two stools. I mean, you know, what I would say um, is either you do it properly or you don't do it at all. And I think, you know, the, we talked before about the United States in a previous podcast, the United States is an anti-imperialist empire. Yeah. It was anti-imperialist imperialism. And in a way, you know, had they gone in in 2001 and said, we don't care if you call us imperialists. Basically, we're here for 50 years, maybe here forever. Um, we're going to treat Afghanistan as a colony and we will rule with ruthless determination or whatever. You know, they'd still be there now. Well, um, because, because as we said, you know, it's perfectly possible to conquer Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> if you, you know, if you kind of, uh, frog march people carrying the soil of their native city and then mix it with their blood. <laughs> yes. you know, I mean, it's a, the option is always there. Um, we weren't going to do that. But I do think, I mean, I do think it's, it's striking that, um, you know, back in the homeland, particularly the American homeland, uh, opposition to imperialism is probably more, more passionate than it's ever been. Uh, and yeah. in Britain as well. I mean, imperialism has become a completely dirty word. And yet, at the same time, yes. Well, you can go down somebody's timeline, Tom, Twitter timeline, and 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 tweet a center eight a.m. says I re we really really need to hurry up with decolonizing this curriculum and demolishing this statue of a Victorian general. And tweet b sent twenty minutes later says we've got to do something about we um, must do something about Afghanistan. It's shameful that we've run away. And you sort yeah. of think, well, come on. Yeah. I mean, there's a clear contradiction yeah. um, here. And and I suppose it's. I mean, it's, and I'm sure it, the Taliban. We're aware of those contradictions. I mean, they. Do you think a lot are of they been following the decolonization of the curriculum argument? I, I, I think that that some of them are kind of sophisticated spokesmen. Um, well, they are much more sophisticated who, who are now than on Twitter, yes. unlike say Donald Trump. Um, are <laughs> you know? I think they're perfectly capable of obviously of, of working out what the state of morale is in Washington. Yeah, I mean, I actually think the the parallels. You know, I'm so glad we did that Vietnam podcast before this because I think the parallels are, are the, and the themes are uncannily, the themes are uncannily similar, and just as they were in the Soviet invasion. And the irony is that you know, George W. Bush and Tony Blair said we have absolutely learned the lessons of the past. We've definitely not repeating the mistakes of the Soviet invasion, and yet the Soviet client state survived longer after the departure of Soviet troops. Well, I think I mean I the, think that that photo of the helicopter over the American embassy will appear on many many the cover of many many textbooks yes it will indeed the decline of america indeed. and the decline of the west it will indeed right so um that's the broad sweep tomorrow we'll go deep into the most famous episode i think of imperial failure in afghanistan which is the first anglo-afghan war 
I mean, welcome back, William Dalrymple. Tom, are you hoping for a word in Edgeways this time? Um, no, I don't think I, I don't think there's any point because uh, Willie, the story that he has to tell is such an extraordinary one, and he is so well qualified to tell it that I feel it would be presumption on my <laughs> part to uh, to intrude in any way. There is one last thing I would like to say, which is that on the topic of Western imperial engagements and the damage that they can do. Um, on Monday and Tuesday, that's the 23rd and 24th, I will be doing a walk. I'll be walking 50 miles in 24 hours. And among the causes that I'm raising money for is uh, um, the cause of Yazidi refugees. Yazidi is a religious minority in northern Iraq who um, uh, basically have, have had an absolutely terrible time of it recently and uh, can't go back to their homes. So uh, if you could in any way find it in yourselves to uh, support that walk uh the details are uh, on my pinned tweet which is at holland underscore tom and the links are there so uh thanks thanks very much for that it's a great cause do please support the ian botham of history podcasting <laughs> thanks a lot bye-bye bye-bye thanks for listening to the rest is history for bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hold up. 